On this episode of Behind the Headlines, the Freedom of Information Act. How did those requests go through? How long did they take? And when does it get into folly territory? On today's episode, FOIA Follies with Sarah Scott and Gus Burns. As I said, on today's episode, Sarah Scott is here, Gus Burns is here, and as always, my co-host, Vice President of Content for MLive, John Heiner. How are you, my friend? Eric, I am great, thank you, as always. I'm always great at this time of the week. Uh, and I'm coming back refreshed. We took a week off, as you know. Um, it was my my annual observance of the autumnal equinox, in which I, I go out and into nature and weep quietly for the passing of summer. <laughs> Don't did, we all? Yeah, we did. Uh, Eric, how'd you spend that hour I gave you back last week? I, I don't actually remember how I spent that hour, but I'm sure it was worthwhile, whatever I did for that hour. <laughs> well, we have a special uh, we have a special edition of Behind the Headlines today um, because we often talk about things that MLive has worked on uh, and has published. And today, it's kind of, we're going to do two things. We're going to go back in time. A little bit, but we're also going to go forward and give you a little sneak preview on some great journalism that our, our team is working on. And so that that uh, that happy, mirthful voice you heard chuckling a second ago is Sarah Scott. Sarah, welcome to Behind the Headlines. Sarah oversees our statewide public interest reporting team. Good morning. Great. Thank you, John. Thanks for the invite. We're excited to talk about our, our project. And joining us is uh, one of our reporters on that project and statewide team, Gus Burns. Good morning, Gus. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you here. Back in March, every March, the Michigan Press Association celebrates something called Sunshine Week, and the whole industry celebrates it. Um, it's, it's a little bit, it's not always a celebration because it's really about the, the never-ending fight for transparency um, from uh, government bodies for to have access to information for journalists and the public, and how you know laws need to change and and uh, conditions need to change so that we can exercise our First Amendment right to bring information to people. And so every year, uh, it's kind of like we go out and do our rain dance and hope for change, and it's always a slog. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's such a fundamental um, and necessary tool in our toolkit for doing our jobs well on behalf of our readers. And so today we have Exhibit A, I think. Sarah and Gus are here to talk about a project that they're working on. And I don't want to steal any thunder, so I'm going to turn it over to you. But where we talk, uh, you will see kind of explicit examples of uh, both the importance of this kind of information in these laws, but also how, how difficult it is to employ them and, and us doing our jobs. So with that, Sarah, I just want to turn it over to you so you can kind of frame, frame the story that you're working on um, and then maybe uh, go into the discussion of, of why we need FOIA to help us get this, get the work done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, John, as you mentioned, um, FOIA, which is, is known as the Freedom of Information Act, is a federal law, um, but each state has sort of its own version of that. And just to give you some perspective on how um, open things are in Michigan, we are ranked um, dead last um, by the um, Center for Public Integrity um, in terms of transparency. So it is very difficult for us to get public information um, in Michigan, um, but we use it all of the time. Um, and, and Gus can tell you we file FOIAs probably every week. It is probably our most important tool in terms of um, telling our readers and the public um, how local government spends its tax, do tax dollars and 
um, how much overtime firefighters are getting, how much your city council is spending on on roads and water sewer projects and, and, and who, you know, which companies are getting those big contracts. So it's a great tool for us as watchdogs um, to, to, to perform that role. Um, so within that context, um, you know, earlier this summer, um, we covered um, the Faster Horses Festival. It's um, in southern Jackson County and, um, and it's kind at, of uh, Michigan International Speedway. Correct. It's yep. It's at MIS, which straddles both Jackson County and Lenawee County. And we've covered this festival for years. It's a, a three day country music festival. Um, well, this year, unfortunately, there were three deaths out at Faster Horses. And so Gus and, and um, some other members of our team decided, hey, maybe it's time to look at this from a public safety and a public health standpoint. And so the, at that time, um, Gus and I talked in, um, and he started filing requests from several local police departments, um, four altogether. And um, I'll, I'll let Gus elaborate, but um, we started that process at the end of July. Um, Gus, do you want to um, update Eric and, and John on, on how that went? Uh, sure. I mean, and, uh, to a quick correction, I think it would have been four deaths because they had the, the carbon monoxide deaths and then there was yep. also a woman who had been found dead. So yep. kind of like one of the early on before we even got into this FOIA project, I had filed a FOIA because we weren't getting any answers as to um, how the woman named Melissa Havens died. And hey, Gus, can I stop you right there? Sure. Uh, when you say not getting answers, you know, how did you make the, the original inquiries? Well, I mean, we have uh, local reporters who are checking into it. So they were initially reaching out separately from me, you know, asking, all right, so this happened. Um, you know, what, what's, can you give us any information? Because originally the police just put out saying that they were looking for a suspect and that this woman had died for unknown reasons. And obviously that raises more questions than it answers. So right. um, my involvement at that point was we weren't, get, no one gave us a cause of death. So usually um, the, the uh, medical examiner's report, um, usually it's a, it doesn't take that long. And and so within a couple of weeks after the autopsy, they might, you might have to wait a few weeks for toxicology reports. And so I filed a FOIA around when I thought that that would be ready. And then they, that was the first FOIA, they responded saying still under investigation, it's an open investigation, so we can't give you anything. Um, so as we expanded to look further into the festival more broadly, I, there are four different departments that actually enforce at the festival. So, um, so yeah, so we went up, basically sent FOIAs requesting, we were trying to go back to the beginning of the festival, uh, which I believe is 2013. And, we wanted Correct. to see. We wanted to see every. I mean, we were we were interested in the more egregious things, um, and those were sexual assaults, um, regular physical assaults, and deaths. So we narrowed it down to those reports, and we filed it with all four agencies. So we got the Michigan State Police, Jackson County, Lenawee County, and then the local Cambridge Township, and um, it started. I, I think the FOIAs went out on July 23rd. We still don't have all four of them back. We're still waiting on state police. They ended up, um, and, and this is not abnormal for, for agencies to request money up front. Um, they, they say that they've got to go through each one of the reports and redact names or certain things that are not, the public's not privy to. So they say that they've got to go through each report independently and they've got all this time and 
if anyone doesn't know, they're, they're allowed to charge the amount for the employee, the cheapest employee who's qualified to do that work. So usually it's a clerk or somebody, um, and then they, that's how they figure out how much they're going to charge you. They estimate it. And more and more agencies, and we came across that here, request half of it up front. And then um, so you, you pay your first half, and then eventually they come back and say, all right, well, we got it done now. And in that time frame, well, <laughs> we can break it down like this. All right, they have five business days to respond initially. And generally, every agency will then request an allotted 10-day extension. So you're already right. getting close to a month out um, before you even get a response. And then that response could be, we got open investigation or something to kind of deter you. In this case, that that's, that was not the case. They know they've got the reports. These are pretty basic public records that we're requesting. So, you know, so they basically just said, we got a lot of work into this. And then we paid the first half and then we had to wait for them. And now we paid the second half. So we paid $2,000 so far. We've got about 80 reports and we still have reports coming from Michigan State Police. We don't have any clue how many we'll get from that. Hopefully it's a, a good number for the amount that they're charging us. And that's kind of where things stand now. Well, when we talked about this episode behind the headlines, I mean, the, the working title in my head was FOIA Follies because yes, some yes. of this is mind bending. Um, and in a world where you can go on the internet and get your license plate tabs or you know, do whatever uh, on your phone, um, Sarah, let me just turn it over to you just yeah. so you can talk practically about the hoops that we need to jump through. Now, I know that these agencies, if you're a law enforcement agency, you're set up to enforce laws, not do paperwork, maybe. But at, at this point, you know, 100 years in, <laughs> you think you would may, you would have uh, you know, streamlined the process and been a little more uh, mindful and responsive to the public's access to this information. But go ahead and talk about some of the some of the real practical uh, problems that were presented to us to try to get this information. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question, John, because um, especially in this case, um, as Gus said, you know, we we had to wait our five days and then we had to wait the 10 day extension um, that the law allows them. And so then they finally come back and they say, well, um, we'll we'll start pulling it together if you write us, you know, if you pay us for half. And so we're like, yeah, sure. Here's our credit card. And they're like, no, we only take personal checks. Um, so I had actually, I had, yeah. Who, who asked right? for a check anymore, right? Right. Well, can't yeah, we just I mean, Venmo? Can we just Venmo you the money? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, that's kind of. I didn't have a check. I was originally going to try to pay him up front, and I don't have a checkbook, <laughs> so we had to get. I, yeah. Sarah to do that. Yeah. I, apparently, I'm the only one on our team that's over fifty and actually still has a checkbook. <laughs> so I, I get to write all of the FOIA checks, but M Live very graciously reimburses me. Um, so I started writing a series of checks, personal checks, mailing it to these small police departments down in the Irish Hills. Um, and that took some time. And then when the reports finally came in, you know, Gus and I were super excited. And we're like, great, send them to us. And they're like, okay, but you're going to have to pay for shipping. And, and, and we're like, well, no, just, you know, digitize them and send it to them in an email. Oh, no, no, we can't. We can't do that. We can't do that. So they're all, they're all collated, they say. So they got to take that's going to be all kinds of extra money because they got to take out the staples. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I almost, I almost swore. I almost, <laughs> that, that almost popped right. out of my mouth on this podcast. They have to take out the staples at $30 yes. 50 an hour. Yes. 
Yes. So in in uh, in the spirit of uh, getting this information, I just got in my car last week, and I said, "Well, it's a nice day for the uh, for a drive into the Irish Hills." So I I drove down to Cambridge Township, and I picked up a box of police reports there, and and they were very nice. You know, I, I don't want to bag too much on these people, as you said. You know, their their primary job is to enforce the law, and this is seen as you know just an extra add on to their workload. Um, but, you know, so I went to Cambridge and then I, I picked up a bunch of police reports there and I went over to the sheriff's department and Adrian and, you know, and then I drove back up to Lansing and, and met up with Gus. So we finally got our first batch of uh, police reports. Uh, but Sarah, it, I, I will say that is a beautiful drive in the, this time of year. <laughs> it is. It's you very pretty. You know, I hope you stopped at El Chapuline <laughs> and down in the Grasshopper down in Adrian and right. had a great lunch. Uh, I didn't. I didn't because I was on a tight schedule, but it was very nice. Um, so, yeah, it was nice to get out of the office. But, yeah, it is sort of shocking that in this day and age that we can't, number one, pay with a credit card or Venmo or or, or something like that. And, in, and then have them, you know, digitally sent to us. Um, you know, we're not, you know, these are not easy locations necessarily for us to get to. So it, well, it's I, been quite I an like adventure. I add, step in here and say, to your point, about they were, they were nice when you got there. They're not oh, necessarily yeah. uh, anti giving us the information. It's just not in their yeah. house. They, this is not what they prefer not to deal with this. Now, right in my career, we have had some government bodies that were openly hostile to our, toward us, and it took every step possible to make it difficult for us to get information. We had one entity it was Bay County, where they said the 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 only qualified person who could. Uh, deal with our request was the corporate counsel, the attorney for the county. And yep. so her rate was like, you know, 150 bucks an hour. I mean, yep. so that was a concerted effort to, to deny information to us. Um, and so that happens. But in a, a lot of these cases, we're dealing with small government bodies or something, and this, they're just not set up to do this very well. Yeah. Right. And I, I did want to say, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they were nice to you because I was, I could be a little blunt sometimes. And I, uh, <laughs> I was like the, the Cambridge clerk by the time it got to the point that they said they couldn't scan it for me and we had to deliver a check in person to pick it up. I was kind of, a, I, think, I believe I called their system archaic at some point. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, Gus, they were very charming. Uh, but, but John is right. I, I, the system, especially in Michigan, it's set up to make things difficult. And, and we've had a lot of cases over the years. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Ryan Stanton, our, our city hall reporter in Ann Arbor, was trying to get information on the um, railway station over there. And so I filed a, um, a, a FOIA request for emails between the city of Ann Arbor and the Federal Railroad Administration trying to figure out why this plan for a new railroad station kept getting delayed. And they were like, OK, yeah, sure, we'll grant your FOIA. And they sent it over. And it was literally just like black marker you know, blacked out all the text. It was pages and pages that we paid for that they're just like, well, parts of this are just not, um, they're, they're exempt. They, they rely on a lot of exemptions. So they sent over like just pages of, of blacked out, um, you know, reports um, after they charged us for it. So it, it, it can become sort of a really frustrating game between us and, and, and government. So you know, all the obstacles aside, so far, uh, is what you're getting from the, the returns, 
kind of validate your thinking that there's a story here? I, I say yes. I mean, mm. what we what we've heard is what we know about is what we've reported on, and you know, not everything rises to the top or to the public. Um, knowledge and there are things in, that we've come across already that are quite interesting and are things that the police never revealed before and it kind of paints a bigger broader picture of some of the conduct that goes on at the festival yeah i mean without giving too much away because um we are you know now really getting into the the um the reporting and and piecing together exactly what happens out at faster horses um, there are several instances I think that the public will find um, very, very disconcerting and, and, and very shocking. Um, so that's sort of the next step now that we know um, exactly um, some of the things that have been happening out at this festival. Um, Gus is going to be working with a couple of other reporters um, that will be tracking down um, you know, some of the, the victims and the suspects who are involved in these assaults and, and sexual assaults. And we'll also be talking, obviously, to a lot of police agencies whose job it is to um, keep the public safe out there. We'll also be talking to, you know, public health and our, our local hospitals and our ambulance drivers, all of those folks that, um, you know, we rely on, you know, to, to keep us safe. Um, and, and we'll be taking a look at sort of the, the public safety and the public health toll of, you know, what it means to have a, you know, a three-day country music festival. Um, in your community. Yeah, that, I mean, we always go out there. We always have reporters out there. Um, you know, and festivals are fun, but right. uh, there's like widespread alcohol use and to a degree, probably illicit substances and that sort of thing. You got a lot of young people, the demographic there skews pretty young. And so things are going to happen. It's like a college campus or anything else. And, yeah. and one thing that I would point out as well is the Faster Horses organization, and I'm not casting aspersions, just true. When we had the three deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning, and I would like to note that, you know, sadly, one of those those young men was uh, the son of one of our employees at MLive. Um, the, the, the festival itself made no public comments. No, no public comments about the death of the woman. It was like the show must go on sort of thing. And so this is why it's important to have a conduit through official government agencies so that we have transparency and answers about what goes on. Um, and, and one thing I think about when it comes to something that is this public, <clears throat> um, like there's certain things we ask for that are that are behind the scenes public documents, but these are things that I would assume the the people governing these police agencies, like the city councils, the commissioners, that they would want to know as part of their normal, you know, understanding what's going on in their community. Like I would think that they're getting summaries and reports about what happened this year, what happened last year, how does it compare? And what are the, even if they didn't turn into charges, there's probably certain cases that they would want to be aware of. And so when, when, you, when you try to get these documents that I would think should be readily available and then they're difficult to get, it makes you wonder why. And, you know, are they being, are they doing a great job if they're not really tracking themselves and in the, in the, what happens at the festivals that closely? Exactly. Yeah, that yeah, that's a no. That's a great point, um, and I think the business community, you know, plays a role in this as well because you know certainly when you've got when you bring in you know thirty or forty thousand people into your community, that's a huge economic boon, you know, for a small town like Brooklyn and, and Adrian and and the surrounding communities. But I mean, but at what cost? And I think that's one of the things that we're going to be trying to address in this story. Um, is it worth it when you look at 
the toll that this takes on public safety and, and on public health. Um, is, is it worth it to have, you know, faster horses um, or a festival like that in your backyard? Yeah, it's like, it's important to note that we don't ask questions because we're anti anything. You know, Correct. We go, I go to concerts, I go to festivals. I love concerts. Yeah. But, you know, I think our role is to make sure that all the questions are being asked in situations that people are accountable. Accountability is good. Um, and that, you know, we understand the cost of things, the true cost of things that happen in our communities, because there's a lot of, you know, I'm even at the races at MIS, you know, they, they need uh, overtime for cops, they need a security, there's, there's traffic accidents, things happen when you have events of that magnitude. And I think it bears asking the questions. We, you know, it's the same reason we ask questions of, of government buys about how they're spending our taxes and so forth. So, right. You know, Eric, uh, you know how many, you know, all the vast superpowers that vice presidents of content have, right? Yes, I'm well aware. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, people, people put up the bat signal from time to time, you know, and they, they want me to come to the rescue. And I had a family member uh, who I won't name, but contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said, was certain that I was going to solve this. But uh, uh, one of her children had been involved in an incident that was, you know, it was a disputed assault type incident. And he'd been given a victim number by police and she couldn't get the police report. So she was absolutely certain that mm -hmm. um, her relative, who's a VP of content, could swoop in and get that police report. And it was one of those conversations that starts with, I'm sorry to tell you, because she's like, I got this letter and they asked for an extension. I said, oh, yeah, that's just the first step. Yeah. <laughs> get oh, ready. You're just, getting, you're just getting started here. Yeah. <laughs> she's like you know the whole are you kidding type of stuff and i'm like no i'm not kidding this is our everyday life you know it, it's yeah. going to be months um oh the state police are involved oh okay it's going to be a little longer and you know get your checkbook out et cetera et cetera et cetera so um yeah we do not have superpowers uh, any more than you do we just it's our job to stick with it yeah and i think that's a great point john because i don't think the average person realizes what it takes um, to get these documents, which should be public. I mean, under under our laws, these are public records and they should be ready readily available. Um, but we spend thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours tracking down um, and being very persistent to, to get these records. Um, it's very labor intensive and it can be very expensive, as you know, because I'm sure you've seen my expense reports over the last couple of weeks. Um, these things add up pretty quickly. Um, you know, I mean, I, I just think it's important to note that, you know, good journalism, when it's done right, it, it, it's, it can be a very expensive operation. But, you know, we, we think it's worth it. Well, we pick our spots, you know, um, we do weigh these, you know, if we're looking for township records on overtime and they say it's going to be $8,000, you know, we're not going to end up paying eight, but it'll probably be three and it's going to take a long. And we just say, you know what, we'll move on. But we had a case uh, several years ago in, in Grand Rapids that mm -hmm. had to do with a police lieutenant. And, you know, he, he got, he was drinking and driving and he got kind of the, the white glove treatment from his peers and, they they circled the wagons and did not want us to see the the audio recordings that came in on that and all this and we ended up we stuck with that for a year or more and spent seventy five thousand dollars of legal fees um, because we were committed and there was a chance we were going to lose and we ended up winning and the city had to reimburse the seventy two thousand dollars but that is the cost of doing journalism but yeah as we say we don't we don't do those cases every month 
but we're all, you know, give us a sense, Gus, of how many FOIAs you file in the course of your job. I mean, obviously it depends what you're working on, but I'm filing FOIAs generally at least every two weeks. You know, I mean, a lot of the agencies, their, their records, you want to find one thing out, right? For instance, right now, I mean, I'm covering the marijuana regulatory agency and I only see, they, they only publicize any complaint that turns into some sort of a penalty. So I'm wondering, well, how many uh, different complaints are they looking at? So like when you get a question like that, they're not just going to tell you, you've got to file the FOIA. So those things come up, you know, by week, every other week, every week, um, frequently. Well, there's, there is a sort of a default stance for a lot of agencies that even if you walked in and said, you know, can I have that you know, list of phone numbers for officials, you know, you know, something that's just like obvious, they'd say file a FOIA. I mean, it's a C- I've had to do that. It's a I've C- had to FOIA, FOIA public numbers for, for elected officials before in, in Detroit. Yeah. Their police commission would not give me the phone numbers to the people who were elected to their board. Yeah, and it, I have a whole side rant. I think I did it back in March about ways that I think the law could be improved. And, and not just to put these agencies behind the eight ball, but make it easier for everybody. So what would be some of your ideas, Sarah and Gus, about, about improving the process and not it put in an onerous way, but just streamlining this? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of easy things they could do. One, they they could make it um, so that you could pay with a credit card or you could pay with Venmo. Um, they could make it so that you could, you know, they could digitize these and, and send them to you by email. Um, I think they they go really heavy on the redaction, which it adds to the time. And a lot of the things that they redact are very questionable. In fact, we challenge a lot of the redact- redactions and we win on appeal. Um, so I think if, if they approach these things with that, you know, this is a priority, we should make um, transparency and an important part of, of what we do. I think that think that could help things run more smoothly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to start off with, it would just be the very basic of public documents shouldn't need a FOIA. I mean, like, I think communities need to kind of step in and kind of regulate their own agencies. And that takes a city council saying, listen, don't make the public do a FOIA request for a single police report that may not may or may not be. I mean, it just seems like there's there are ways that may, like in Saginaw, you used to be able to go in and manually go through each of the police reports yes. each day. Um, there could be a way that people push towards that. Like even if even if it's an automatic redaction, you can't see victim name. There's way the computer programs can block out every name on a on a doc a PDF document. There are technology they could use to at least make the basic facts available at the click of a button on the internet. And not many people do that. Not many agencies do that. Yeah, I have like a, a five or 10 point thing I've gone through a lot of during Sunshine Week. But but one is what you just mentioned, Gus, which I think would really make it easier for everybody is agree on a set of documents or information that are always available uh, with a verbal request or walk in and you get handed a sheet, right? Like employee names, uh, public phone numbers, their salaries, um, you know, uh, meeting minutes, you know, we've had a FOIA agendas. I mean, it's just crazy. There should be a list of things that are automatically available. And, uh, also I think there should be a commissioner task force up to streamline this for local governments, which have a lot of turnover in people and they have to learn and get up to speed, but streamlining, it would make it easier for everybody everybody. And we're not trying to get stuff that is, 
you know, uh, that doesn't belong to us, this person, you know, personal information or something that is under investigation. We don't want to impede uh, police work or prosecutors work, but they could streamline this. It, and one thing I always run into is they, I think there needs to be a third party. Like you, the police are filtering what they want when you request things from them. And there's really no oversight. Like for instance, in these cases, a couple, I think Cambridge, the police chief did everything and gave it to the clerk. So she she had no involvement in, in seeing what there really was, the batch material versus what they were providing. So you miss that check and balance when you don't have someone independent of the agency. And then what you find a lot of times is if they deny your FOIA, then you appeal. A lot of times it's to the head of that agency, like rather. So I, I always send it to any elected officials that have at least copy them on it so that they know what's going on. Because otherwise you're going to get the same answer from the, from some oh, of the right. We've had situations where we had to appeal back to like they say no. And we say, OK, we're going to appeal. And they say, OK, you have to go to the FOIA coordinator. That's you. So, right. <laughs> so if you've ever seen National Lampoon's vacation and Chevy Chase's car gets wrecked and they're fixing his car and they charge him 800 bucks and he says, what does the local, you know, constabulatory think of your business practices? And the mechanic shows him he's the sheriff, too. <laughs> it's, that's what it's like. It is. Um, but anyways, FOIA follies, it's, it's nonstop fun for journalists, but it's a little cat and mouse. But the good thing is we usually get enough of what we need to prevail and, and do the kind of journalism we need to do. And so, especially in this case, thanks for previewing it and not giving too much away, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, and Gus, thanks for your work on this uh, very important story. And can you just give us a sense, Sarah, when uh, our readers might see this? We are going to be uh, meeting later this week and uh, hopefully finalizing our, our plan. And so I'm hoping um, probably by uh, mid to late October. And, and a big a big portion of our work is going to depend on the state police FOIA, which is still not back yet. So, yes, excellent point. We are still waiting on the Michigan State Police, which I think Gus they promised us uh, on September thirtieth. We got a few more days. I think they said the first of October. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm hoping the state police command uh, commandant is a listener behind the headlines. Yeah, <laughs> and enjoyed this episode. It <laughs> goes in and says, "Hey, uh, speed up that that uh, the response on that request." Yeah. Sarah Scott, Gus Burns, uh, Eric Halkerin, thanks for a great conversation today, uh, and, and thanks for joining us on Behind the Headlines. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It was fun. And there they go. A huge thanks to Gus and Sarah for the work that they're doing. And as always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, comment, or share wherever you get your podcast. Until next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Hulkerin, and this is Behind the Headlines.